Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And we have a we have a great guest today. You know, I saw him at the Keswick Theater a few years back before the pandemic, and I actually went to his acoustic show. And he's with the band The Alarm, and they just sold a sold out show the other night. They have an album coming out. You have you, have, you do so much, Mike. And my guest is Mike Peters. How you doing, Mike? Hi, Steve. Great to see you. And uh, thanks for coming to the Keswick Theatre, seeing us play there. It was great. So how was the show the other night? You did a sold-out show at, uh, what is it, St. David's Hall? Yeah, in Cardiff, yeah. It was fantastic. It was a, a proper epic alarm night uh, with the fans. And uh, it was in a fantastic venue with the fans all, all up in the gods, in the balconies. and But all close to the stage is a great venue to play in. Uh, it's a hometown gig because it's capital city of Wales. And... Uh, yeah, I think we were on stage for about two and a quarter hours, maybe more. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe two and a half hours we were probably pushing it. And uh, it was a great night, played a lot of songs. Now, I want to talk about the new album. I want to talk about how's your health? Because, you know, I know you, you had a problem and, you know, you've been going on through a while and, and you've, you're an inspiration. Be cool, Aslan, you're doing, you're, your calendar's packed. But how are you feeling right now? Are you feeling good? Yeah, you know, I was, I, I was obviously, I ran across the stage. My smiley odd drummer said, you need to put your iPhone in your pocket and see how far you run on stage because you get up through a lot of mileage. Because um, I use four microphones across the stage these days. So as as a guitar playing front man, it means I can sing to the left and play to this audience who are on stage left and, and then run across the stage to stage right. And I have two in the, in the, across the middle as well. So it's, uh, I, you know, I sing one verse at this side of the stage and sing another one at that side and... It's um, it's it's great, you know. So I'm fit enough to get through all that. My blood count's great. The drugs are working. I'm on a brand new sort of chemotherapy regime at the moment, and that's working really great. And um, yeah, I'm firing on all cylinders. Now, what happened? It was you had a relapse, and it was after some shows in New York, or what happened? It was a while ago. Yeah, it was. I was. We were doing a big British tour, and I, I started getting a cough, and then I was, after the tour, I was diagnosed with uh, pneumonia. Which is um, a leukemia survivor of many, many years. That's it's kind of the worst thing that can happen to you. Really, it's the thing all cancer survivors with a, a compromised immune system fear the most. And obviously, I was struck with pneumonia, uh, extreme pneumonia, very severe, and uh, I had to cancel everything. And and <clears throat> unusual for me, told to rest and recuperate as the only way to get forward. So. To not do anything, I found quite difficult, but I managed to uh, get through it. But there was more to it than than we all realised. Was my at the same time as diagnosed with pneumonia, my leukemia was starting to fight back as well, and uh, so I ended up quite um, compromised situation in hospital for quite a long time. I was uh, on the ward for many for a couple of months, and uh, and so I, I knew I was going to be in for a long time. So I brought the guitar in and uh, and and ended up unintentionally writing lots of songs that have made up the new album forwards it's amazing i saw the documentary about you and you've done so much and then you know you 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 really you are an inspiration i know you hear that a lot and, and, and a lot of people aren't but it's it's a great thing because you've done so much for awareness uh, cancer i mean you know from playing the mountains in <laughs> malayas with the top of those guys i mean yeah. what what yeah, made is it things. Is it just in your heart and for your fans that made you want to give back? Because some people just don't give back. back. I'm, I'm still a fan, so 
you know, I want my bands that I like to sort of be real. I don't expect them to be, um, you know, to come out and meet me if I'm at the gig. But but with the alarm, um, I just sort of thought, I just felt like the fans were part of the gig from the beginning. You know, that when whenever we played live, the fans would sing along, and that was the sound that that people were coming to hear. Not just hear the band, but to hear the the fans, the spectacle of the alarm fans getting involved in the concert is, and it's still, you know, that was what struck me on Saturday, you know, that fans are singing every word from right through the whole hall. And it was an incredible wall of sound when you're on stage and you feel them singing the songs back to you. It's, it's amazing. You know, when I, when I first returned to the stage after all my troubles with pneumonia and leukemia, it was an event called The Gathering in North Wales. And the, unknown to me, the fans had, had cooked up a scheme where they were going to sing me onto the stage, not not me sing to them. And and I walked on the stage, put my first foot on the stage, and I thought, what's, what's that? No, I thought something had gone wrong. <laughs> and it was a piano intro, and then all the fans started singing, and it was it was incredible. And so I, I think you know they're, they're they're an extension of what I do. So I think it's uh, you know we've had this event in Wales every year. We've been running an event called the Gathering, and fans come to us. And so we've always tried to be as accessible as we can. In 1991, probably the first band to do it in the world, we opened a phone line where the fans could call in and get information about the band. It, it, it wasn't just the record company. It was, you know, because record companies change, agencies change, managements change, bands change, but fans stick with it. And we felt like if we have a constant phone line, you know, it became email eventually as time moved on as well. But uh, we still have an open phone line and people dial in and they can talk to um, people like, you know, my mum, you know, when she was alive, my mum answered it, you know, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a family thing and we've always treated the fans as part of our family. Now, like you have a gathering coming up in uh, New York. Now, tell me exactly what will go on there. It's June 23rd and 24th at the Gramercy. And uh, what what is the gathering? I mean, it seems like a, is it a big, like a convention, like an alarm convention. I mean, what is the gathering? Yeah, it's, it, it, I think it's, it's in a way it's a role reversal where when we do it in Wales, the idea was always that because you know, I've had to um, sort of recuperate from a lot of I've had cancer a long, long time in my life. So there was times when I couldn't really tour properly. So I thought, well, let, let, let's let the fans go on tour and I'll stay at home and do this amazing gig. And loads of fans came from all over the, the world to be there, lots from New York. And so I thought, OK, well, let's take the gathering to New York a few years ago before the pandemic started. And and it, we did two nights at the Gramercy Theatre and we, we show some films before the band come on stage as acoustic parts of the show. We have daytime events, you know, so that fans will, this year we're having a, a Sunday morning event, which we haven't announced properly yet, but it's going to be in high, in um, in Central Park. And we're going to meet all the fans after the two shows in, in the park and have a walk and have some music, in, in you know, by the fountain in Central Park and probably all pay a visit to um, John Lennon's Strawberry Fields. Uh, space in Central Park, so it's it's a chance to step off the stage and and integrate with the fans in a real way, and that that's by integrating with real life. You know, moving away from the stage into an environment where we can all walk and talk. We can you know we can raise some funds for our Love Hope Strength Foundation and help you know some families who are struggling with the disease. You know, whether they're carers or they're being ca cared for 
or, or their patients. You know, that that's the whole idea is to bring people together to make a difference in the world, even if it's in a very small way, or it can be, a, you know, a small step in the right direction, a small kindness that you can show to a family who are suffering from cancer goes a long way. It makes a big impact when, when you look at the dynamic of it, even if it's to inspire somebody to have one more hour alive to fight, hang on till that, their loved one gets off the plane and can go and be with their mother or father as they pass away. You know, it's that having that extra, that last chance to say goodbye, you know, it's something we're fighting for, something we're holding out for. And uh, and because life is beautiful, you know, even if it's in for a short space of time. So we do our best to, um, you know, inspire people to stay alive as long as they possibly can. Tell me about the foundation, because it's, it's very important what you do. Yeah, it's, it started because I was ill myself. You know, I, I, I wanted to give back to the nursing staff in the hospitals and, um, you know, people who were actually caring for me were, you know, making sure I wasn't getting bed sores or, or, or would help me get up and get to the bathroom and back to my bed, you know, where I was being treated. And there's, you know, this, I, at the time when we started the charity in 2007, there was lots of charitable work going into cancer research and finding the cure. But I felt there was a gap where there wasn't a lot going on for people on the front line for where, where cancer is being dealt with as, a, as an existing um, force against humanity. So we, 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 uh, from my window where I was having the chemotherapy, I could see the highest mountain in England, the Wales Mount Snowdon. And I, I thought, well, when I get well, I'm going to climb that mountain. I'm going to take up as many fans as I can. But we'll give all the money to the nurses who are treating are at my bedside right now. And, and that became our template. So when when it expanded and we went to Everest, you know, we didn't bring the money back from Nepal and spend it in the UK, Europe or in the USA. We, we left the money behind in Nepal. And it goes a long way then. It's just, it might seem, you know, we raised him like $300,000. but it, and, and in America, that's not a lot of money. But in Nepal, it was a vast amount of money. And it meant we could buy uh, mammogram machines for women suffering from breast cancer they didn't have to leave their family and fly to india to be tested they could do it in the in nepal so we bought the first mammogram machines in nepal we helped develop the back to poor cancer center in in Kathmandu, and that's what we've done in other places when we've gone to africa we've built a children's cancer center in dar es salaam and we've continued to support that we we, we take our message to the world cancer congress and we go and speak to cancer leaders and cancer specialists and, and we and we show the effects of how their work is working on ordinary human beings like me who go to hospital have chemotherapy or take oral chemotherapy drugs uh, on a daily basis and show how it works and that you know we, we, i think i've from 2007 i've represented a new face of cancer where it's not a death sentence anymore it might be you know you might have to face the end game but you can still, you'll have a lot more time to to get used to the idea and prepare for it. Say goodbye to your loved ones. It's not an instant uh, death sentence, not for everybody anyway. So, you know, and people, and some people are outliving the disease and, and, and we wanted to get that message across because everyone, when I was diagnosed with cancer, I thought, this is it, I'm dead. And, and it was only by um, reading about it and meeting other patients that I realised I had a fighting chance and everyone has a chance now. So 
that's the message you want to get across. It's good because it's such an important mind frame. I went through a heart problem and I was in a hospital for eight days and I was shitting myself. I was like, what, you know, I was worried. But then I, if you really, if you're positive and you do find more out, it really changes your, your, your view and it helps a lot. Yeah, I think so. I think, look, by being positive about it, and, and you're accepting of the situation. You're gonna, the drugs are gonna work a little bit better, I think. Then you know, if you're feeling down and 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 downbeat about it all, and you think, oh, this is it, it's not gonna work. Then the, the drugs will feel they'll 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 meet blockages on the way. I don't know what they are. I don't know how they form. <laughs> but, but you know, it's it's like if you can bring yourself to smile, it's 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 a good thing. You know, and and it's uh, I know it, it, often. With cancer, people find themselves in dire situations. But I still think if you can find a little smile in there somewhere and remember who you are as a person and, and try and remember where you were before you heard the word cancer, that's what I say to a lot of people. Because no one prepares for cancer. You know, you, no one sits at home and thinks, oh, you know what, I'm going to get a book about and read. And I'm going to read about cancer tonight just in case. <laughs> no one does that. It happens, bang, it comes out of the blue. You're not expecting it. And then you think, oh, my goodness, and you hear the word cancer and you plummet down to the ground floor and you think, I'm never going to get back from this place. And I think I always say to people, just remember when you heard the word cancer, just wind back a minute before that and think, well, maybe the doctor's going to tell me, you know, I, I need some some antibiotics or something. And then they, they, they hear the word cancer, whoosh. But just go back to that point and start your recovery from there, not where cancer sends you, because that's. That's the devil inside, you know. I was thinking of the in excess song, the devil inside of of being cancer, and that's what it does. It plays tricks on us. It it wants to make us feel like we're we're worse than we really are. It wants to make us feel like we're going to lose our lives when maybe we aren't. You know, it makes us want to not have understand what the doctor's saying and not and not not do the research as to what is actually going on. So that's what cancer does. You know, it's a mental illness as well as it is a physical one. So the new album comes out June 2nd, and I listened to the few songs I could listen to online. Very good. Tell me about forward, the album forward. I want to talk, the video, whatever. I, I want to talk about that in a second because it was a good video. I'm like, thank God, Ned, your little, your little uh, Watson or whatever. But, <laughs> yeah. but uh, tell me, the uh, so you wrote this album when you were in the hospital. Is that is that what you did? Yeah, pretty much. A lot of it, yeah. What happened was um, I knew it was going to be in for a long time, so I thought I'd just get my wife to bring my guitar in because I thought, well, something to do when in between the IV sessions, I can, you know, keep my fingers going and keep playing and, and uh, just gently play. And I wasn't expecting to write any songs, but all of a sudden the songs emerged. And and I think, you know, I was thinking, well, I wonder if anyone else has written an album in hospital, you know, and maybe I'm, I'm in a, a, a mine of undiscovered gold here, you know, somewhere along the line. And uh, and so just melodies started arriving, and, and I thought well, I'll transcribe them onto the guitar, speak them quietly into my phone. A lot of the time, I was lying on my side because I had a, um, a drain coming out of my back. I had to release five liters of blood out, out of my lungs. My lungs are filled with blood, and 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 I just let my imagination run. And there's a lot of noise in the hospital, so I thought a guitar would, you know, be able to. I'd be able to distract myself from, you know, the the other patients on the ward who were struggling, or, and and then it, and I realized some of the hospital noises become like a beat. You hear the bleeps of the heart machines go, that becomes your your click track, and then you've got your guitar, and and then the other patients are thinking, 
hey, don't stop now. We're enjoying hearing the chords, you know, and the, the nurses and the, the, the auxiliary staff would come in and they, they'd sweep under my bed an extra time if I was playing my guitar because they, like, they liked hearing the music. So it, it kind of became my own hospital, live hospital radio in a weird way. And, and, it, and just new music appeared. I couldn't believe it, but it was, it was there. And I was even doing things. I, I, I was at a point where I knew I had to go public of what was happening because people had seen me coming into the hospital. There was, you know, there was a one, one, it got one of the, there was a big alarm fan in the hospital cancer center whose father was there and he saw me being treated and, and they posted it online. And I was like, oh no, better go live. Just tell me on what's really going on. And I, so I did. And I signed off the, the message. I just wrote forwards as in, let's go forwards. And I thought, it just hit me like that's a that's a song title that's your album right there and that became the album title and so I get the guitar out and, and the song trying to find the way forwards and it was all instinctive because I, I, I didn't want to give up you know a lot of the time in hospital in this day and age because of litigation people don't really want to give you any false hopes in hospital or give tell you too much in case that the the diagnose diagnosis shifts and and so you have there's a lot of second guessing I think for the patient and you know you can see the doctors are thinking things that they don't want to share with you in case that because they don't quite know what's really going on at first and and so you know it's inevitable when you're in hospital especially because we're all plugged in with phones and we're on the internet you use Doctor Google and you start going and you think oh no is that happening to me and <laughs> and so it's it's um. You know, it's quite a it's a it's a very dynamic situation to get used to being in hospital. Um, it's it's very different in this day and age to how it was when I was a kid. So um, I'm glad I had my guitar there and was was able to turn it into a a creative experience of sorts. Well, okay. Well, I saw the whatever video. Tell me about that. First of all, where where did you shoot the uh, video at? Uh, it was on the mountainside, right outside my house, right outside the doorway. Uh, Mount Hirathig in, in uh, Moyle Hirathig, it's known as here in Wales, and it's not that high, but it's it's high enough. So it's a bit of a challenge to get up there, and there's a an old communication building up there from the early times of broadcasting television, and there's a mast there to use to sort of um, grab the signal before it disappeared over straight over the mountain and send it down to the residents in the shadow of the mountain. It's old technology. And sometimes when I when I look out my windows at night, you'd see some lights in there. So it's maybe some people using it for shelter if they were going to get up early to do some bird watching or something like that. I don't know. And I and I just thought make make a great uh, metaphor for where I've been in in this isolation and, and and cut off from the rest of the world. And and I, you know I think about uh, it was partly the song lyrically. I heard. Um, John Lennon on the hospital radio singing um, whatever gets you through the night and I thought never mind the night well, how am I going to get through this life and so I transcribed that into a, a whole other song and I just thought about you know we, we use our screens to communicate all the time now and, and I think screens have taken over from when we were kids and we were listening to music for the first time the speakers were, the, were everything in our rooms now it's the screens have, have replaced the speakers and the music's gone into the background and, and you play albums now while we scroll around on Facebook or see what's happening with our favourite sports team or, or FaceTime our friends. You know, the music's on in the background now. It's not in the foreground. So, and I, I always thought when when I first started touring in the 80s, I had a, that was my 
Sony Watchmen. And that, that was probably the first portable screen I had, the precursor of the, the iPhone or, or the Android and, and the laptop that you take around you, with you. And you, you, know, you to, it was very basic. You had to tune it, some TV in on the dial. <laughs> and I just, I just had it lying around and, and I thought, wow, yeah, this is great. This is, uh, you know, the, the screens are important now. They, they are whatever. They are, so it does help us get through, you know, when you're in the hospital, and you can FaceTime your kids and your and your wife before you go to sleep. It's it's powerful. It's a, it's a great tool to stay to stay strong with. So uh, I want to kind of get that across a little bit. Well, what was uh, it like yeah. for what was it like for you to shoot that video? Because you know you're you back in the eighties. Back in the eighties, you shot huge videos. I mean, you know, you know from being in the industry how the the budget has changed. You know how the record oh, company yeah. can't screw you. But what was it like for you? Because it, it's it's a Good looking video. I mean, what did you shoot it on? Did, was was it a? Did you have a full camera crew or what? Yeah, no, no, just 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 uh, Jules, my wife. She's a good photographer, so she shot a lot of it on her iPhone, um, and, and we shot it on a, on another HD camera as well. That was up with our tour manager Andy, <laughs> pounding up the mountain ahead of me, and that was it. There's just the three of us, and and I took my um, stuff up in the in the case with, and then the 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 star balloon was an emblem of the album forwards has got a star on the cover and i thought that's me carrying my life up the, up the mountain with a bit of help from the balloon to keep it floated because we all need a bit of help to get through life and uh, it was just a, a coalition of lots of things you know i wanted it to look a little bit surreal because i think i've been in a surreal situation you know being in hospital is surreal because you're surrounded by life and death and and it's you're never, you're never going to get comfortable or relaxed. You know, you never really sleep in hospital. There's always so much noise going on and other people, you know, getting into difficulty in the middle of the night and then all of a sudden the curtains are moving and there's staff are moving around and, you know, there, there was a couple of people passed away on the ward while I was there. And that, that takes some getting used to. And I thought I was grateful to have come through a very surreal situation and uh, shot the video for well, the earlier songs next. Shot that actually in the hospital corridors because uh, uh, you know at one point in 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 the situation, I wasn't sure whether I was going to be heading to the next world or the next chapter of my life. And and so, are you ready for what's next? Was there was a duality to that song, and um, and I, and so when I was given the all clear and I could leave hospital and go home, I wanted to capture the excitement of walking down those corridors thinking I'm going home it's an incredible feeling and leaving it all behind and uh, so yeah so it, the hospital paid a big it was almost became this sort of recording studio in some ways well you're funny when you're in the hospital for me what always got me is you can't sleep but as soon as you got to sleep the nurse will come in and take your blood you'll be like oh my that's god that's it exactly it's, it's that's it, it, it you never you never out for long are you, you know the, or the vital you've got to be wired up for your blood count or Oh, your, your heart rate and all that sort of stuff. You know, mad. So with the new album, and it's about, you know, what you've been dealing through, was it easy? Because lyrically in your early career, you were very, you were political. And now this is more, you know, this is more about your feelings. Is Was that, as you said, it flowed, but was that tough? Like when you, when you first started writing more about what you were going through? Because politics was a charged time when you guys started out. What was it like to transition now to write like that? Yeah, well, I, I think to be honest, we, we were never political in that sense that so we took sides. I think we 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 felt like we had something to Issues. say, but our, 
Uh, yeah, our, our point was always about trying to make people aware and make their own decisions for politics and not have their decisions made for them. And I think that's that's where it, now when it, it comes to write about a personal situation, it's just about as being as honest and as open as you can. And um, I didn't want to hide away from what was happening to me in hospital and pretend it wasn't happening and wasn't going to affect my music because it was. Because when I first came out of hospital and, and was getting used to the chemo drugs that I'm on now, I lost my voice completely and I thought I'd never be able to sing again. I was very concerned. And uh, but so I thought, well, I've got to, I have to sing about this because I sing about, you know, leaving Wales and going to America the first time. I documented that. Coming back to Wales and relearning about Wales, I documented that. I've got a, so now I'm in hospital, I've had cancer, I've written about that. This time I wanted to write about, I, I, was, I think I was writing this record about not where I was being, but where I wanted to go. I wrote it for, I wanted to get out of hospital. That's what I wanted to go forwards. I want. I wanted what was going to happen next. I wasn't writing about being ill as such. I wanted to write about recovering and appreciating life and, and and aspiring to the life that was possibly being denied to me. And that that's what I wanted to get across the record. I, I thought I've written the records about being told I've got cancer for the first time and diagnosed with with, with all that and and dealing with the illness and and the, but this time I wanted to write about I, I was sort of writing about what what's going to happen to me I, I thought the the there's um whatever you think you are today you can be tomorrow and that's that's what I was kind of getting at I was I wanted to be I wanted to be that person that I was going to be tomorrow when I didn't have to take drugs anymore or I do but I can do them at home and I can still be a musician and be a father to my kids and husband to my wife and do all those things that, that you're required to do as a human being and that you can easily take for granted. And um, and I wanted to get back to um, normality. Now, the album, it's got a great sound, the songs I've heard. It drives. It's it's good. But then now but you're doing an acoustic tour. And now, now, what's that going to be like? Are you, are you, tailor, you going to tailor some of the songs? Or tell me about the acoustic tour that's coming up. Well, I think the acoustic tour and the electric tour, there's... They, we both have one commonality, and that is the audience sing all the words, and, and whether I'm playing the songs on my own or with the band, and so so both both elements end up at the same point at the end of the night, and everyone's singing their heads off, and it's uh, so it's uh, because of the gathering. I've always played an acoustic night on the Fridays usually, and electric on the Saturday. And they're both equally as powerful because the alarm, as as we've never been about having a sound as such. We've been our thing has always been having solid songs right for a through the whole timeline. And uh, our criteria, or my criteria as a songwriter, has always been: I have to be able to play all these songs in the subway on my acoustic guitar. Otherwise, then that's not an alarm song. And and I think we've been, you know, we've created a strong body of work. You know, we we we're not. We're not like some of the bands who've got that massive number one killer song that's omnipresent on the radio, on the retro radio, and everything like that. We're 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 more of a consistent type of band. Where I, you know, I like to think we've made a lot of really strong albums, whereas some people have made albums with one killer song and the rest isn't that good on it. And whereas I think an alarm record is something you can listen to from start to finish, and it has has a standard to it that that it doesn't fall below. That, that's my opinion. 
and and I think that comes across when we when I can take the alarm into an acoustic environment, and it's it's like being in a, an alarm gig. But it, it, and you know I play drums with my feet, I run some loops, and and I make it a very uh, electric environment. But I come it I come at the songs from a different point of view. So, um, but they sound like it always sounds like the alarm because it's uh, they're the songs that that, that drive the band. And uh, I like playing acoustic because I can have quite a lot of freedom in in where I can go, and so it's it's very unpredictable when I play acoustic because I don't really know what I'm going to play till I walk out on the stage and see the audience think, oh, they want this kind of song tonight, and then I hear them shouting and think, oh, I'll go to that, yeah. And it, it when you're in a band, it's hard to cue all that in because you can't expect the drummer maybe to learn. 500 songs like I know right. and be able to play them at a drop of a hat whereas I can you know if someone shouts out for something from obscure from 1982 I'm there I can you know they want second generation yeah okay you know how can I try I know it you know I can't expect the whole band to come into rehearsals for th six months and then a whole six year you know 40 years of music to be able to play it at the drop of a hat and so, um, but in an acoustic show, I can dive bomb around the, the whole catalog of alarm songs and, so, and it becomes really ama amazing when it gets, uh, when it connects. So you don't have a set list when you do the acoustic, you don't have a set list. You're just going up. No. I mean, do, do you have a little bit of an outline? Cause I do comedy when I, and I have a show, big show yeah. coming up and I'll start, I have my opening and I have my closing, but then I experiment, yeah. but I always have that little in case they're not like me. Yeah. I know I can grab them for you. You just, <laughs> you just walk out. Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, yeah, and we, you know, and I've always done it like that in an acoustic environment because uh, I, I like to, um, uh, I like to play the songs the audience want to hear, uh, and and because not the ones I want to play, not always. You know, I find space for them as I go along. But sometimes when you walk out onto an audience, that they're, they're they're in a different mood than maybe you've anticipated because of something's happened in the daytime or. The, the evening news has affected everybody's um, can, the way they're thinking that night. So it, it's important to go on with the radar up and, and plug into it. I'm sure you do the same as a comedian and you sense the mood of the audience. And and then I like being able to go wherever it takes you. When when you go on stage with a band, you have to have a structure. You know, everyone works, we all work the set list in the dressing room, even if it's in the dressing room before we go on stage. We still put the songs in a structure, even though it might be the, the different the next night. But then if, if something happens on the stage and somebody shouts out for something that, and that you think, wow, we need to play that. You, not everyone knows it. It's difficult. So I, I like the freedom of the acoustic shows. And also because because I've been through this whole situation this year, I'm still not 100% sure I can actually play the band back to back night after night for three weeks like I could in 2019 when we did 38 shows across America or, or you know six shows a week at least we were doing maybe some longer and uh, so I'm not sure if I, I can do that just yet so I thought I'm going to do an acoustic tour first and see make sure I can handle that all the way through and then we can start plugging the band in because I also have to be in hospital every two weeks for IV treatments so I, I can't stray too far from from bass like I used to. Uh, so I've got to find find a way to adapt to all that and, and find a new way to 
present the band around the world because for our audience as well because I don't want to not come to America or go and play not go and play in Germany because I'm conditioned to be in a hospital in Wales every two weeks. You're really innovative. Tell me about the big night in. You started that. Was that started during the pandemic? I know a season six just started, but what is? I mean, that, yeah. it's just that that's so great for your fans. But tell me, tell me more about that. Yeah, it was. It was. We were literally playing the night the pandemic arrived in Britain when lockdown started, and so we just thought, let's go online from the sofa. You know, we've got all those fans who are disappointed they can't be in that weekend's shows. So we just decided to go online and and chat, and I play acoustic by my jukebox, and uh, and and that was it. And then it, that was how it was until the rules started to relax, and we were allowed to do get-togethers for thirty people in Wales. But that meant it still meant you couldn't do a band show or go off on play in London, but we could get thirty people in our community. So we started uh, having thirty fans come in to stay. At our apartments, and uh, we we converted our studio into apartments, so we could have twenty two fans staying at the apartments, and we rented the community hall, and we could do a show for thirty people, and we broadcast them live as the big night in, and it, so it was expanding to having a live audience. You know, I tell a lot of stories in between the songs, take requests, and and it, and it became. A, a real lifeline for all of all of not for me as a musician it meant I still had an audience to play to and the audience still had to, a show to go that they could go to that was live in their living room and lots of people were doing it from the music community but we've kept, kept ours going because it, it, it just really connected it allowed I learned a lot from it about the songs you know now now we still we've got we do the, we do call them alarm staycations and we have fans come and stay in the village in our apartments and they're part of the big night in broadcast. But on the next night, I play a set based on all their requests. I never choose, I don't choose one song. I, they, I get all their lists of what they want to hear. You know, I think the most one Saturday night I had to play 47 songs. <laughs> and I spent most Saturday afternoons and I'm like, wow, I haven't played that one for years. I, 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 how did it go? I can't remember the chords, you know. What trying to find myself on YouTube and to get the chords right, and so it's put me in touch with quite a lot of songs, and that I kind of want to take that energy now out onto the acoustic tour, where it could be a bit of a free for all in terms of what what songs get played, and where and when, and, and uh, the audience can feel like they can manipulate the show themselves as well and have a say in it. So. I think it's going to be interesting. Now, when you write a song, like on the latest album, and all through your career, do you know it's a good song when you sit there? I mean, or is it sometimes you sit there and you're working on it and you're working on it and you go, uh, I don't really like this that much. I mean, do you, yeah, or do you yeah. know? I think you, you, you sort of know, but the ones you like the best aren't the ones the fans like the best sometimes. They like the ones that you, you maybe wrote quite fast and you think, wow, I, did, I didn't even almost realize I'd written it <laughs> and uh, I, I, but then you get an instinct when you start to play them live you do know which ones go over the best and which ones make a connection that I'm sure you, you understand that as a comedian when you, you don't need to get to the punchline to know if the joke's working or not do you <laughs> yes. and, uh, and it's the same with the song you don't really need to get to the chorus you know it's only the first three chords making sense you're okay and uh, so yeah I just I, I, I find but my my thing is can I play this on my own? It, it, I have to be able to play it on my own to be able to play it for the band. 
and then I and then I think if I'm going to record it, I think can I am I prepared to live with this song for the rest of its life and stand by it and not be ashamed to play it or or, or annoyed by it, you know? And and yeah, shape songs can sh- shift shape as they move along through the timeline, but I think you know it's important to stand by them and allow them to grow and grow with you. So yeah, you know, the songs just come and and. You play them, and I think the audience really dictate which are the good ones. Although you you have your own favourites, but I think as a writer, I'm sure, as again as a comedian, you you haven't told your best joke yet. You're still working towards that. I'm still working towards my best song. I feel. When did you know that you were going to be a musician? Because that always amazes me. Like, was it you know, was it when you were a kid? Was there a defining moment, or when did you know that this was going to be that you knew this is what you wanted to do? Well, I, I, I remember when we had our first hit record, uh, I was terrified that we were going to be one-hit wonders. And it was only when we had a second hit, I thought, aha, this could be forever <laughs> if I play the cards right. And uh, so um, I think you, you I, don't, I don't know if you ever really know, but I, I think when, when we first started the band, we, we thought it was about being famous and getting a record deal. And that didn't happen. And, and then... Uh, when we started the alarm, I, we we kind of broke everything apart and started again as as a new entity called the alarm with a new idea. And it was more like, look, let's let's just see where the music takes us. You know, there was we had an incident when we were a band called Seventeen. And we we tried to kidnap a journalist from the NME and make it. And we thought if he came to see us, he'd realise how good we are. And they put us on the cover, and it, it all got a bit unsavory in the corridors outside the enemy the offices and there was a journalist there called um uh uh what was his name now um oh uh right roy carr and he he broke up this melee of 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 trying to grab this journalist and stick him in a lift and take him down and put him in our car you know under duress and then roy carr broke up he said look mike you know I appreciate what you're trying to do here. I kind of understand that what 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 where, where you're coming from. But he said, if you put all that in, instead of trying to drag people to see this your band, put all this energy into your music, and your music will drag people to see you from all over the world. And and I thought, okay, yeah, that's a good point. So I, I put all our energy from that point into the music, and I didn't care whether it attracted an audience or not. I thought we've done my best, and that's what. I can live with. So I knew I was going to be a musician from that point, but I didn't know if I was going to be a famous one or not. And and I was happy to just be a musician for the rest of my life, even if it meant setting up a PA at the weekends and singing in the garage with some friends. And I still have that ethos now. But what made you pick up the guitar for the first time? What, what made you, what was your, you were young, I'm guessing. I, well, see, seeing um, my sister went out with a guy in a band who played guitar, and, and I think he he offered to give me some guitar lessons, uh, uh, and probably as a way of getting closer to my sister, really. And then I I I, I couldn't it hurt, you know. I was like, oh, I'd rather play soccer. And then uh, and then um, and then I saw David Bowie on top of the pops and Slade, the glam rock bands, and I thought, wow especially Noddy Holder. I thought, I want to be like him, the singer of Slade, with that guitar. And so I went back to the, the guitar this guy had brought into the house, and I could play it. I always remembered the chord shapes, and that was it. And then, then it started to make sense, and then I saw the Sex Pistols, and I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to be in a band. I'm going to form a band and 
make it real. Do you remember the first time you heard yourself on the radio? Yeah. It was uh, it was on uh, John Peel. And uh, we, we'd, we'd been a band called 17 and we made a single. And it was called Don't Let Go. And uh, and the B-side was a song called Bank Holiday Weekend. And, and we were changing our name from the 17 to the alarm. Uh, um, and we wrote to John Peel, and he said, oh, I've got this letter from this band, 17. They're changing their name to Alarm Alarm, he said. And he goes, uh, there's a few of these bands with Duran Duran, Talk Talk, Double Barrel Names. He says, I'm thinking of changing my name to John Peel, John Peel. <laughs> and I said to the lads, we call the alarm from now on, okay? <laughs> well, before you go, uh, just do me a favor. Tell me two good stories that you may take you say on your acoustic show because I'll be in America. I can't see it, but tell me what what people in America are listening. What they're missing. Tell me two good music stories. Well, so, well, you know, some people often people ask me where where do your songs come from, and I I don't, I don't they come in in your imagination. You don't need a guitar to write a song or a piano. You've got imagination. That's all you need. And and I I, I remember. Um, sometimes thinking i think songs are gifted to you in a way and uh I, I was going across the border with bob dylan once in in 1988 we were playing with dylan on the never ending tour and uh we all had to get off the tour buses and stand in front of the immigration officer with our passports and bob dylan was right in front of me and i was just waiting to cross the border and then some music i started hearing the melody in my head and i went there are no frontiers it was a Became an alarm song on the Change album in 1989. There are no borderlines we can't cross tonight. And I was thinking, and then I thinking, wow. And a big man upstairs probably sending that one down to Bob Dylan, but missed and got me instead. <laughs> Give me one <laughs> that, more. That's kind, of, that's kind of how I I see it. And and then, and, but I think you were asking me about what what made me pick up the guitar well I, when i saw the sex pistols in 1976 uh, i i watched them in they were on in a place called quaint ways in chester and it, they were very unknown at the time and uh when they came out i didn't know what the language was i i didn't know what anarchy meant i hadn't been taught that in school when i went to real high school and it was like pretty vacant and submission these were all words that were i didn't know what they were they weren't in part of the vocabulary in 1976. And so after the gig, I went up to Johnny Rotten and I said, uh, you know, I plucked up all the courage to look him in the eye, you know, and I actually went, Mr. Rotten, <laughs> probably the worst thing you could say. Yeah. And he went, what? And he glared at me with those eyes. And I, I said, what does anarchy in the UK mean? He went, oh, fuck off. And he went and got a beer, and I thought, wow, you know. And, and anyway, I, th I thought it was incredible. Johnny Rotten's told me to f off. This is incredible. And a few, about a month or so later, I went to see the Clash on the White Riot tour. A couple of months later, I went to see Clash in Manchester on the White Riot tour, and I was in the audience waiting for them to come on. I was so excited. And you know, when the roadies come on, they flick the switches on the amps. Those little red lights come on. I thought they're coming on. Oh my goodness! And but I had one slight problem. I was desperate to go to the loo before the band come on. So I pushed my way back out through the crowd in the Electric Circus in Manchester. And I got to the toilet and I stood in my manhood against the white wall. And next minute, I looked to my right. Oh my God! There's Joe Strummer stood right next to me here. And I looked to my left, you know, and there's Mick Jones and then Paul Simon and. I'm looking, and then top of Heddens there, the whole of the clash has stood 
in the toilet with me. And I closed my eyes just for a few seconds. I'm in the clash. <laughs> and it was great. And then and then afterwards, I, we, we did, a, you know, we had all zipped up, you know, there's loads of zips, wasn't there? You know, we all zipped ourselves up. And I went to wash my hands in the in the sink and Joe Strummer again stood next to me washing his hands. Probably wasn't many punks doing that in 1977. And I said to him, um, what? What's White Riot all about? And he went, the future. The future is unwritten. And I went, wow. You know, and he said something positive to me. And right in that moment, I always think that's when the alarm started. I had the negativity of Johnny Rotten telling me to F off. Joe Strummer saying po something positive. The future is unwritten. And that was where the magnetism of those two energies clashed and created the alarm. That was when the alarm was born right there and then. Well, there you go. That was awesome. That's that's a great story. And I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, your website is thealarm.com. You have so much going on. People, go go listen to The Alarm again. Uh, to go to their website. It's very informative. Go to my website. You can find over 950 episodes, coopertalk.net. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.